Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I hope you'll keep your New Testament handy there. If you want to make some notes, that'll be good. And we'll follow, you'll follow with me. I, a prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. God places a premium on unity. And just a casual reading of the Bible is enough to understand the emphasis that God places on unity. For example, the book of Philippians is a book of joy. It rings with joy. It's the only book in the New Testament where the word sin is not found. It seems to me that of all the churches, the church at Philippi must have been Paul's favorite. It was a, it, it's, it's a book that just rings with joy. And you can tell he just loves those people there. Yet there was a problem in the church at Philippi, a serious one. A couple of ladies in the church couldn't get along. And so you'll never see that happen here, of course, but they, they couldn't get along. And so Paul writes this epistle and deals with that. And he says, I beg you that you be in one mind. When you look at the book of Acts, where the church explodes on the world, you'll find a phrase that just occurs again and again. They are of one heart, one mind, one soul, one spirit. The psalmist says, oh, how good it is when brothers dwell in unity. But the greatest statement concerning unity, believe it or not, is found in a prayer that Jesus prayed. It's in the 17th chapter of the book of John, and He's about to depart, and so He's praying for His disciples. Here is the petition, that they may be one. Here is the pattern, that they may be one as you and I are one. And here is the purpose, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Now that's an astounding prayer, an astounding statement about unity. Unbelievable, really. And the, the remarkable thing about that prayer is not the petition that he prays that they would be one. We've seen that before. It's not even the pattern. As amazing as that is, the astounding thing is not that he prays that we'll be one like he and the Father are one. The astounding thing about that prayer for unity is its purpose. That, they, that the world may believe that you sent me. Now the implication of that, of course, is that the world's not going to believe that Jesus is sent by God unless it sees unity among the brethren. The world needs evidence that Jesus is Messiah. And here's the evidence, he says, that there is oneness in the body. In other words, the thing that's going to cause the world to believe that God really sent Jesus is that the world sees the people, the believers in unity. 
And so the Holy Spirit's ministry is the ministry of unity. Two things about the unity of the Spirit. First thing is that the Holy Spirit is the producer or the perfecter of unity. He is the source of it. It is the unity that the Holy Spirit produces. And what he's saying is this. Now watch this carefully. He's saying that if you and I just let the Holy Spirit do what He wants to do in this church, what He will do is produce oneness. Now notice the... Look at the essence of that. It's unity and not unison. There's a difference between unison and unity. Unison is where everybody sings the same note. Now, we could be singing the same note wishing we were singing another note. That's, not, so, that's unison, unison, but not unity. Unison's where you've got everybody in the same place. It's like Wheaties lined up you know, on the shelf. But you can, have, you can have everybody in the same place wishing they were somewhere else. I'm not going to take, you know, I'll not, it's a good thing I don't read minds. And that, so you can have unison and not unity. Alexander McLaren used to say that you could tie the tails of two tomcats together and hang them over a clothesline, and you'd get singing in unison. You know, they'd be singing in unison, but I guarantee there wouldn't be any unity. So that unity is oneness of heart. It's what the Holy Spirit produces. It can't be regulated. I mean, you can have all the pie suppers you want to have, and you can shake as many hands on Sunday morning during visitors' greeting all you want to. That'll never produce unity. For the unity is a oneness of heart that's produced by the Holy Spirit. You let the Holy Spirit have freedom to do what He wants to do, and what He'll do with His church is make us one. Look at the element of that unity. It's produced by the Holy Spirit out of the grounds of our commonness. We have so much in common. As a matter of fact, in one verse, there are, there are seven times he uses the word one. As a matter of fact, the things that we have in common, the things that unite us are much greater than the things that divide us. What do we have in common? One day I sat down with two young people very much in love, and they, I was going to plan their wedding with them, so I was doing a little premarital counseling, and, and so I said, we're going to talk today about compatibility. I could see that didn't register what that meant. And so I said, what I want to talk about is what we have in common. I said, what do, we, what do you all have in common? And I knew I was in trouble when they had to huddle over that. And so they, they got in a huddle and they discussed it and they came back with the answer. They had two things in common. They both liked pizza. True story. They both liked pizza and they both liked to ride motorcycles. And I said, well, here we go. We're going to build this marriage on pepperoni and Yamahas. And I, 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 was, <laughs> I was tempted, I was tempted to ask, do you both like the same kind of pizza? But I, I resisted the temptation. We have a lot in common, whether we know it or not. As a matter of fact, look at this in this passage. He said we have a common family. There's one body. And it's a reference to that mystical union known as the church. We're all of the same family. I can get excited about this, so I want you you know, indulge my excitement and listen. You know, we have the same family. Now, if that's true, there are two consequences of that. And the first is this, that if we belong to a family that God establishes, then we have nothing to do or to say about who belongs to it or whether we're going to be brotherly or sisterly to the people in the family. On the contrary, I must act brotherly to everybody in this family whether I like it or not. And the second consequence of this is that we're committed to one another in tangible ways. 
It's no small thing when the Scripture says about that church in Acts, the first one, that He added unto the church such as should be saved. That word added unto means that He placed there on purpose those people who are being saved. And the purpose of placing them in this family called the church was that they might be nurtured so they had everything in common. That's the word oneness or unity. That word means, that idea is that they shared everything they had with everybody else. But it not only means that they shared everything with someone, it means that they shared in everything with someone. And there's a big difference. Now I don't have much, but it's a pretty big thing to tell you that I share everything I've got with you because I'm in your family. I would do that to my own immediate family. As a matter of fact, uh, my daughter who is who lives away from me, all she got to do is pick up the phone and say, Dad, I have a need. I'd give her anything I've got. So would you, your children. It's one thing to say that I'll share everything I have with you. It's another thing to say I'll share in everything with you. It means that when you have sorrow, I have sorrow. When you have joy, I have joy. Because we're all one family. And we have one spirit, one common life. The same Holy Spirit that indwells you and dwells me. And we have one future, one dream, one goal, and that is, he said, that hope of our calling that is the ultimate realization of all that God has promised in Christ. And then that verse 4, he emphasizes God, the Holy Spirit. And in verse 5, he emphasizes God, the Son, and he says we have one common Master, one Lord. Does it seem strange to you that he doesn't say we have one Savior? Let me tell you something. You can't have the Savior if you won't have Him as Lord. We have one master. We serve the same boss. We have the same king. And we have one common, one common experience. And that is one faith, he said. And that's not, it's not a reference to some creed or doctrine. It's a reference to that faith that saves. And what he's saying is that we're all saved the same way. I'm not even better than you. I'm saved just like you are. And we have one common expression or confirmation of that, that experience, one baptism. Some say that refers to water baptism. Some say it refers to spirit baptism. Whatever it refers to, it means that we have one common, one common confirmation of our experience, one baptism, emphasizing God the Son. In verse 6, he emphasizes God the Father. He says we have one Father who is sovereign. He is above all, and He is sustainer. He is through all, and He is our security. He is in all. So that what I receive in this life, just like what you receive, I may work at a different job, but the source of all that I have comes from the common Father of us all. You think we haven't got something in common? Whether we like it or not. Now, out of that common ground, out of that seed of commonness and commonality, if there is such a word, the Holy Spirit produces oneness, unity. Now, if the Holy Spirit is the producer of unity, the church is the preserver of it. Now, I want you to get this carefully. Now, we've, we're off the runway. Now, we're going to fly some. The church is the preserver of what the Holy Spirit produces. You need to know that. Can I say that again? Because I don't think you got it. What the Holy Spirit produces, the church is responsible to preserve. Now, I think that if we really um, took and evaluated our prayer life, most of us would find that most of the time we pray and beg God to do for us what it's our responsibility to do. 
and we work our fingers to the bones for that which only God can accomplish. Isn't that amazing? So we get it in reverse. We beg God to do for us what it's up to us to do, and we work our hands to the bones for those things that, that only God can accomplish. And so we work ourselves to death trying to produce unity. And we have all these gimmicks that we have. You know, we have fellowships and all this kind of stuff. And when somebody, you know, gets crossways with somebody else, we have these committees, you know, that try to straighten it all out. And we try to produce unity. And we pray for God to do what only we can do, and that is to preserve it. I mean... It's not up for us, to us to produce unity. It's up to us to preserve it. Notice how he said it. He said, diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit. Now that little phrase, diligent to keep, takes about six Greek words to translate it. It means really, it means hurry. Get in a hurry. It means immediacy. It means urgency. The word zeal comes from that. those six Greek words. The word... Burn comes from that. And what he's saying is this, that keeping unity ought to be the immediate concern of every believer, and it ought to be like a fire that burns in him, so that his burning desire and his immediate priority in life is to keep the unity the Spirit produces. Most wonderful, wonderful possession this church has is unity. Now, we have some beautiful building here. We just built a new building. For those of you that just kind of come here for the first time, I want to you know, let you know that we've built a building. And we have some equipment in this building, and we have, we have a facility here that, that's really the envy of a lot of folks. As a matter of fact, when the uh, singing churchmen of Oklahoma came here and they went up to our choir facility and they went through our building over there, they were just astounded, amazed at it. True story. This television studio we got upstairs, where these guys right now are, it's, a, it's the only one of its kind in this part of the country. Amazing things, true. We're the only people, the only church that has its own, owns its own channel, thanks to the generosity of some good people you know. With our own facility, etc. And we have wonderful facilities, but that's not... That's not the primary possession of this church. The greatest possession of this church is fellowship, unity. Now, the thing that some people have said to me have come here, for example, the pastor who preached the last revival here said, I cannot, I am just amazed at the fellowship I sense among you. We better keep that, folks. Because we can do without buildings. And we can even do without preachers, as bad as I hate to admit it. But we cannot do without oneness. You ever been in a church where there wasn't unity? You love it, don't you? You hate it. So that we can get along with it. What is our first burning priority, according to the Apostle Paul? It is that we preserve at the cost of everything this unity in the bond of peace. Now, the question is, how do you do that? How do you preserve oneness? Well, there are three ways. Now, I want you to jot these down because you need to know it. First is that you must walk honestly. 
Now that's what he means when he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now you can just go back to the passage of of John 17 and you'll know right up front that the calling of Jesus to discipleship was a calling to oneness, and they knew that. And the astounding thing about it all was that even though they jockeyed for position and place among the disciples, the amazing thing about it was that He could have those twelve men living together and getting along. It's astounding. For example, you have Simon the Zealot, who is just like the Islamic jihad in our day, and Matthew, the tax collector, who is the most despised man that the Jew would ever look upon. And you have those same two, one of them, a member of the Sikari, so named because he carried a knife he liked to stab people with, called a Sikara. And the man he'd like to stab would be Matthew, this this traitor of his people. And these men all together, all the way through that from one end of that spectrum to the other were these folks living together in unity. Now listen to me carefully. You ought to have known, if you don't, you know now, you ought to have known that when Jesus called you to, to, cry, to Himself, to discipleship, He called you to unity. And if you can't live in a manner consistent with that calling, that's what he's saying here, if you can't live in a manner consistent with that calling, you need to change your name. Because Jesus Christ and strife and division, those are contradictory terms. And there is mutual exclusiveness in both of them. So that if you have been called and you've been saved, you are called to unity. Do you believe that? And you need to live in a manner consistent with that. So that if the purpose of this church is not... If the purpose of this fellowship is not to preserve unity in the bond of peace, we need to take down the shingle and close the door. How do we do it? We we walk in a manner that is consistent with our calling. We start doing what we said we would do. Now, if you're called to be a doctor then um, do what doctors do. What do doctors do? Well, they doctor. I mean, that's profound. (laughs) If you're called to be a teacher, do what teachers do. What do teachers do? They teach. If you're called to be a Christian, do what Christians do. What do they do? They preserve unity. They're one. All right, second. You walk... Humbly, look in verse 2, with all humility. Now he's not talking about a person who spends all his time beating on himself. What a terrible person he is. He's talking about a person who has come to grips with who he is and what he is. F.B. Meyer used to say, I thought that Christ gave us gifts, each on a shelf, one above the other, and the taller we stood in character, the easier they were to reach. I've I've begun to understand that God gives His gifts on shelves, each below the other, and it's not a matter of standing tall, it's a matter of stooping low. I love it. And so when Paul comes to this book of Philippians, just take your little finger and flip over there, if you will, to chapter 2. 
And now he's talking to two women, and it's worth writing a whole New Testament book about two women who are having problems with one another. And he comes to chapter 2 and he says, If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and consolation, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Look at here. Maintaining the same love, united in spirit intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. There it is. That's what humility means. It means that I come to the place where I not only look after my own selfish interests, but I see your interests as important or more so than my own. Stooping down. That comes about when a person when a person begins to put his life up beside. You see, a proper evaluation of yourself occurs when you put place your life beside perfection. Are you listening to me? I used to think I was a pretty good golfer until I saw folks who could play golf. You know, I used to play golf almost every day, believe it or not. I haven't played golf in four or five years. When we live in Fort Worth, I live right across the street from this country club, played golf almost every day. Got pretty good. Until I went out to the Colonial... I walked around with those pros, and I came up to 16, following along behind this guy, 210-yard par 3 across water for the last 50 yards was water. Saw him take out a 5-iron, lash into that Titleist. That ball was about 10 feet high, just soared out there, just whistling. And it got out there about where that water was, just like it was, had a parachute. It just kind of, just kind of elevates, it just settles down right on that green. Realized right then... I wasn't a golfer. Somebody might think that they, could, they were great pianists until they heard Barbara Marianne. You see, listen to this statement. Self-satisfaction depends on the standard with which we compare ourselves. We're so self-satisfied, and it's because we've, we, we're comparing ourselves with less than perfection. Humility comes. Lowliness of mind comes. Stooping down comes when a person places himself alongside the Lord Himself. And with gentleness, he said, look at that. Not just humility, but with gentleness. Gentleness means to be God-controlled instead of self-controlled. When you got mad at that person the other day, when you lost your temper, it's because you were self-controlled, not God-controlled. When you got frustrated the other day, it's because you were self-controlled, not God-controlled. When you worried the other day, it was because you were self-controlled and not God-controlled. With gentleness, with patience... The best word to translate there is put upness with forbearing in one another in love. It's enduring in love. It's what a mother does with her children at night when they cry out and they're sick or they're hungry. And so she forbears. She endures that because she loves them. So how do I keep this unity? By walking in humility and honest, honesty, finally. By walking in holiness. Now if you'll just look at that passage of Scripture one more time and look at verse 22. It says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit and you put on the new self which is in the likeness of God. 
Now, holiness is both negative and positive. It's putting out, putting away the things that are characteristic of the old life. Havner said it is with trailing clouds of farmer loyalties, sins, and habits that we come. You know what he's saying? He's saying that we bring over into our relationship with Christ and into our relationship with one another the old patterns, the old way of doing things. And we're worldly. We are. We're worldly in the sense that we hang on to the same old values that the world has and those old priorities that the world has, we have. We're worldly. And some of us are waiting for God to zap us and take all that stuff away. It's for us to put it aside. Put off this stuff that is characteristic of the old life. And it's your responsibility to do that and put on those things which are characteristic of the new life. And that's your responsibility too. Skip Clark, one of my my best friends, a dear man. He happens to preach in another church, but another denomination, but he's a dear friend. And he, he gets my sermons and my illustrations. He uses them. So I'm going to use one of his. He, he gave me one the other day. He said, this is a Gerald Tittle story. He said, he said, there were two guys, two men in a veteran's hospital room, totally bedfast. They were in this semi-private room. And one of these men was in the bed next to the window and with a great deal of effort he could kind of pull himself up a little bit although they were both bedfast and helpless he could pull himself up a little bit with a little help and look out the window so every day he described what he saw to his friend in the next bed What's it like out there today? He said, oh, well, the sun's shining down. He said, oh, it's just beautiful. And he said, right out there, right outside the window, there's some grass. And, oh, there's a man planting some flowers out there. Beautiful tulips, daffodils and daisies. Just describe it. One day he said, well, look, at, I see a little cloud, you know, all that kind of stuff. Just describe it. And that guy lived every day just to hear his, the description, something he could never see. One night in the middle of the night, the man in the bed, farthest from the window, heard his friend struggling for breath, gurgling and gasping. He knew he was dying. And he thought to himself, if he dies, I can get his bed and I can see what I've never been able to see. And he listened to him gurgle and gasp and he could have called for help, but he didn't. And he waited for him to die. And he died. And when they came in the next morning, they found him dead. They started rolling his bed out, the body out. And the man said to the nurse, Would there be any reason why I couldn't be rolled over there and and I couldn't be by the window? And the nurse said, Of course not. Be glad to do that. And she rolled him over 
by the window, and he struggled and he looked out. You know what he saw? A wall. Just a, just a wall. No grimy, dirty, dingy wall. And I, and I know you know how, what, what the story is about, but I'll tell you anyway. What that man was doing in that bed was describing something he was not even seeing in order to bring some joy to his friend. Some pleasure. Some life. Now, there are two kinds of people in this room this morning. There are people who are so selfish that all you want to do is look out the window for yourself. And then there are some of you who have learned to walk honestly and humbly, who want to live your life so others can have some pleasure and some joy. And you are the folks that live in unity. Which group do you belong to? Or you? Or you? Or me? Would you join me in prayer? Father, we know how important is unity to you. And we know what it takes to, to have it happen and to preserve it. Now give us the will and the courage to begin to do it. For I pray in Jesus' name. There are three invitations. Look here, please. The first invitation this morning is for you to get up out of your place. and This is the first invitation. Come and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Now, it takes a lot to do that. But most of it, what it takes has already been accomplished. Jesus has already died. He's already shed His blood. He's already gone to the cross. That's the main stuff. Now your part is to receive that by faith. It's to repent, to turn away from, to turn around from the old life and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. I want you to do that this morning if you've never done that before. God wants you to do that. Another invitation, and this come, these are simultaneous invitations, is for you to come and place your life in the church. Come and join the church. Come. Get into this fellowship. And you do that by promise of letter, all that stuff, that's just terms. You don't even need to know. Well, we'll you just come and say, I want to join this church, and we'll tell you how it happens. Or you may need to come this morning. Say, I want to come, commit my life totally to Christ, to live honestly to the call. You got some problem with somebody? You may need to work on that. While we stand to sing, I invite you to come.